This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Day five, how are people doing? Um, things have gotten a little light in the Zendo. Um, Mako sends her apologies for not being here. She has come down with something that includes a fever, so it might be the flu. Um, and I think she's both resting and trying not to um, pass that along to us. So our uh, healing thoughts go out to, to Mako. So I think Mako mentioned this yesterday, but I, I want to reiterate that I also really enjoy this opportunity to um, kind of co-teach with uh, Pat and Mako and myself and try and talk about some topic that you know, we all have different experiences with or different perspectives on. Um, and so uh, it's fun to both hear the talks and also get to somehow express my own experience. But uh, I really was appreciating in Mako's talk yesterday about how enlightenment is um, so closely associated with a mistake or an error in Zen. Uh, I, I think I kind of knew that, but, but it was so kind of clearly expressed yesterday that it kind of hit me in a new way. Um, you know, there's a fam- I, I don't remember the, the, the name, but there's a famous Zen story about, you know, a monk just um, raking the gravel um, and accidentally kicking a pebble and it hitting a stalk of bamboo and that just the sound, the immediacy of that sound uh, transformed uh, this monk's perception that he woke up. Um, so I was mentioning to somebody the other day that you know the Buddha was very clear that enlightenment or nirvana is um, what he called unconditioned meaning that there are no conditions that create enlightenment or nirvana. That we don't, it's not something we manufacture, it's not something we create ourselves. But there's a um, kind of very common slogan in Zen that you know, practice um, I always get the, <laughs> the wording wrong. Um, <clears throat> So practice doesn't guarantee us enlightenment, but it makes us accident-prone, something like that. Um, So we're maybe more likely to have this accident uh, in practice. Or maybe more likely to be awake to it or aware of the immediacy of that accident. I also liked Mako's sort of question, open question about wonder what Suzuki Roshi's enlightenment story was or um, and, and instantly a number of them came to mind um, and then it kind of got me thinking about kind of pivotal moments in my own practice um, and since this is the sort of home of um, uh, Blanche's Zenkei's lineage in a way 
um, I wanted to try and share a, a particular experience. I did a seven-day sashin at City Center. I think it was in 2007, and she was. It was during. It was the end of their practice period there, um, and she was co-leading the practice period. Um, and it was the first time that I had um, been a doan in a kind of big. You know, everybody knows about San Francisco Sunset. It was actually the first time I'd ever sat at San Francisco Sunset, so I had all these ideas about the um, the importance of the practice there, or something. And um, because I had been a doan and, and then Eno at the Chapel Hill Zen Center, they sort of just shoved me onto the doan Rio for that um, that particular session. So I'm I'm quite <laughs> aware of what it might be like to be completely new and in this sort of all-encompassing environment of a whole day's practice and fathoming like oh I, I don't know how to do this instrument but now I'm expected to manage it for the whole day. Um, so part of the, the I was doan one day and part of the doan's responsibility was to light the charcoal incense and um, the way they had it set up at the time was that you would get up you know five minutes from the very end of the period and walk over to the kabako or, or to the stand and light the incense and put it in the kabako well, five minutes before the end of the period means that it's like the most silent, still time in the room. And my own sense of like how, you know, it's, a, it's an enormous room, the city center's endo. My own sense of the kind of like not wanting to disturb anybody's practice or something. And, um, you know, every step towards the, the altar was like, you know, I, I don't want to make a creak or... There was just this kind of um, buzz in my body about being very careful. Um, <laughs> and I've since become uh, a little wary of that feeling because if I'm that intensely trying to do something, a, a mistake is nearby. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so I got to the stand and I, I had the tweezers on, you know, you pick up, which I had never used these utensils before, and they're little tweezers, you pick up the charcoal, and somebody had explained to me how much it needs to be lit, because I had never actually lit a piece of charcoal, and okay, the, you know, one whole side, or four of the corners have to be glowing, and so I'd, I'd hold it there, and I'd look at it, and nothing was glowing, and I'd hold it some more, and then something was barely glowing, and I tried to blow on it, and... <laughs> Eventually, I just sort of loosened my grip on the on the um, the tweezers, and the charcoal fell to the floor. And at this point, it was already lit, so it fell on the floor, and some of the ashes scattered on the floor. And I just like instantly had this feeling that the whole room was about to go up in flames because I had dropped dropped the charcoal. And something about that moment, I'm standing sort of to the side of the altar, and the abbots or head teachers would sit sort of um, directly in front of the altar to my left. And before I actually uh, picked up the piece, I looked over for some reason and Blanche was sitting there facing the zendo in, in perfect kind of unmoving zazen. And I felt her kind of uh, deep compassion for this big mistake that I felt like I was making. Um, she didn't move, she didn't kind of like make any expression, but I felt this sort of like, it's okay, you know, and I just, 
I, I forgot, I left the tweezers, I just picked it up with my hand and put it in there. Um, but something about the intensity of, of my own um, presence in that moment and what felt like a huge mistake and her compassion um, made for a really powerful experience in my own practice. Um, So, uh, in this association of mistakes and awakening and and enlightenment, um, another association came to me. I was looking through Suzuki Roshi's um, a number of quotes for the last talk, and then uh, some of them stood out, and I noticed that he was talking about death a lot. Um, I think maybe I was reading a section of quotes that came particularly when he was sick, um, but, you know, in um, pretty common Zen parlance, um, enlightenment is also called the great death. So one way to, uh, that that's often explained is that um, enlightenment or awakening is the death of our ego. And what is our ego? what's not our ego? <laughs> um, can we fathom being without our ego? Is that something we really want? You know, um, Or does that prospect even maybe scare us a little bit? Um, so there's this very clear association with the word death and, you know, maybe the death of the ego, but I think also... Um, our closeness to death, our experiences of, of brushing with death, uh, or even just something that reminds us of the evanescence or fragility of our own life, um, have that same capacity to make us very present and aware. Um, <clears throat> And I think the quote that, that sort of spurred this line of thinking uh, that I saw the other day was Suzuki Roshi said something like, um, and I couldn't find it when I went back to look for it today, but he said something like, when we die, I think we go to the place where we go when we do zazen. Um, and I think one of the big comforts of Zen practice or what it's kind of nourished in me is as an okayness or a kind of um, sort of permission to fathom what it means to, to be alive, what it means to die, what it means to have a limited life in this form. And it it rings true to me that what we're doing partly in Zazen is um, getting to know that place. Um, Maybe if we believe in reincarnation, like getting to re-know that place or call back that place. And obviously it's not a a place, but there's not much way to speak about such things. 
So, um, in a way, what we're asked to do in Zazen is this letting go, letting go of all of these trivial thoughts, letting go of the arising responses we have. Maybe we're first aware, but also then let go, to give over to whatever reality is offering us in this moment. And again, I think that's good training for what it might be like to end our life. And I know I've, I've taken some classes on hospice work. I, I have many friends who do hospice work. And it seems like the best thing you can do for somebody who is dying is to encourage them to let go. That it's okay. Um, I think a mistake that I hear from hospice volunteers that many people make is you know it's very hard to let go of somebody we love and so often the presence of the family uh, with the dying person um, kind of unconsciously like makes that person hold on to life like um, and some people even like verbally say like don't go you know we, what, what we do without you you know and it's actually maybe not such a nice thing to say to that person in that moment. Um, But again, I think Zazen is this training in, um, you know, profoundly letting go, letting go of everything we think we are. And involved in that is some kind of trust that if we do that, we will be okay. That when we do that, we will be okay. So, um, Suzuki Roshi in one talk says um, <clears throat> he's actually common, uh, it's a commentary on the Genjo Koan, um, and his sort of translation of this section of Genjo Koan is life is a period of itself. Death is a period of itself. They are like winter and spring. We do not call winter the future spring, nor spring the future summer. So then his comments on that line are, he says here he talks, here Dogen talks about life and death. But this life and death does not mean uh, the problem of life and death. By life and death, he means understanding of existence and non-existence, or conditionality and unconditionality. When you practice Zen, our purpose of religion or goal of the religion is not in to attain some uh, state of mind, he said, called non-existence. What we, what, what, what we want to attain, we want to attain enlightenment in the realm of both non-existence and existence. This is a Buddhist way of understanding, a Buddhist way of practice. So in Zen, particularly, I think in Buddhism, when we talk about life and death, it's not just our, our personal life and then our eventual personal death. It is the sort of um, the arising of this moment and the passing away of this moment. 
the the kind of non-duality of the realm of existence. So here are actual things. Um, And then the sort of um, unconditioned, the Buddha nature, the, um, the death from which life comes. So he says also, to live in the realm of Buddha nature means to die as a small being, moment after moment. And then interestingly, in another place, he says, moment after moment, we should renew our life. So there's this other idea in Zen that um, life and death are not actually opposites. They're not... They're, they're um, a one whole cycle. They're part of the same thing. Um, maybe we could say reality or Buddha nature includes this cycle of um, birth and death. Hmm. So as an, an encouragement in, in kind of our practice to, um, to try on this uh, letting go, he says, um, to die is more important than trying to be alive. When we try to be alive, we have trouble. This is our grasping. Um, rather than trying to be alive or active, we can be calm and die or fade away into emptiness, then naturally we will be all right. So there's often an association with the exhale in lots of traditions around death. And Suzuki Roshi in particular says, you know, in Zazen, can we really let go of the exhale? It doesn't mean like force it out or try and prolong it, but it just means like allow it to completion. And I think when I first started to play with that practice instruction in Zazen, what came up was uh, fear. That towards the end of the out-breath, I wanted to grasp the in-breath. I wanted to remind myself that on some, you know, kind of deep unconscious level that I was alive, that I was in control. Um, So when we notice these things, that's practice, you know. And then when we keep trying to just be okay, releasing the exhale and seeing what we find. If fear comes up, that's okay, you know. If fear comes up, then we just sort of, we are with that fear. Uh, We're still breathing with that fear. So I think um, some of you know this, um, 
don't think I've ever really talked about it in a talk before, but um, uh, I guess it was only four years ago on the, on the night of my 40th birthday, talk about a midlife crisis, uh, I had a heart attack. <clears throat> and um, it wasn't actually the most painful thing that's happened. You know, I, I've had other more painful things. Um, In some ways, the experience itself was fascinating to um, be wheeled into a cath lab and have a camera inserted in an artery and sort of exploring the heart and sort of be mildly sedated, but watching sort of technology show me my own living, beating heart. You know? um, But what followed the experience of being in the hospital was a pretty intense level of fear and anxiety in a kind of ongoing way for many months. Um, Something about the very core of your being, like the deepest part of your internal world um, and something so instrumental to continuing your own life that it was failing or that it might fail or that pretty assuredly someday it will fail Um, to know that in a visceral way um, was deeply scary but also um, my life came alive in some um, very vibrant way Um, I was very aware fundamentally of the fragility of my own life and what that kind of experience brings. And I don't think I'm the only person who's had some um, closeness with death is is an immediacy. And an immediacy that is, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of joyful. To be so immediately alive feels like joy. So Suzuki Roshi says, in the evanescence of life, we can find the joy of eternal life. Um, When we um, are shown or pointed or kind of fundamentally can't unsee (laughs) our own fragility, there is a kind of um, a sweetness, a kind of awe to what we are and what we're experiencing. And I think one of the interesting parts of this whole experience for me was to watch that fade away, Um, that as the fear quelled, as my heart kept beating and it wasn't kind of stopping again, to lose that immediacy, that kind of, that like intangible felt sense of um, immediacy and fragility. And even the kind of the joy or the awe that that comes with it to watch it fade away. Um, And it's, you know, it's a a very um, helpful and powerful adaptation of the human mind to forget pain to forget instability. 
we all continue to do our daily life because we forget um, how painful it can be sometimes. Um, that in Sashin we can feel an intensity of pain in our leg or in our back. Um, and then maybe a few weeks after Sashin, we have some idea, like, I think I was in pain, but there's no actual tangible association with what that felt like. And sometimes it's even after the bell rings and we stand up and we start to walk in him. What was that pain again? Where was that? It's just gone. Um, So I'm grateful for that aspect of our human mind, but I think practice is encouraging us to, to come closer and closer to this immediacy, this evanescence, this fragility of our own existence as a way of evoking our connection to the eternal um, that uh, helps remind us and encourage us that that in some way to die will actually be okay. So when he was sick, um, Suzuki Roshi died of gallbladder cancer, I think. And um, he didn't really share that with a lot of people early on, so he was living with a lot of pain. Eventually he kind of turned yellow, I think, and people noticed. But um, anyway, there's a quote from the Crooked Cucumber. Speaking of his illness, Suzuki said, When I am dying... Everything is with us, and we are happy to be with everything without being hard or harsh or disturbed. Usually it is difficult to feel that way because we are always involved in gaining ideas, expecting something in the future. The most important thing is to confront yourself and to be yourself. Then naturally you can see and accept things as they are you will have perfect wisdom at that time. And all the stories I've heard about his, um, of his dying were like him being very like expressive of his love for his students and very kind of humorous. And uh, Yvonne Rand was his kind of personal secretary, personal attendant, you know, very close to him for a long number of years. And he had been sick for a while and they thought it was a food allergy or something and she'd been, you know, carefully trying to withdraw certain foods or add certain foods and um, I forget what food it was. Let's say it's ice cream. So so something that he loved, he couldn't eat. And uh, when he got the diagnosis, um, y- Yvonne Rand came in to see him and he said... Isn't it wonderful? I, ha- I have a diagnosis. I have cancer. We can eat ice cream again. <laughs> so my personal favorite Suzuki Roshi lecture from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, is sort of about his understanding of life and death in uh, it's titled Nirvana the waterfall 
And when Mako was talking about what were his what were his enlightenment experiences, this was another one that came to mind. He says, "I went to Yosemite National Park and I saw some huge waterfalls. The highest one there is 1,340 feet high, and from it the water comes down like a curtain thrown from the top of the mountain. It does not seem to come down swiftly as you might expect." It seems to come down very slowly because of this distance, and the water does not come down as one stream, but is separated into many tiny streams. From a distance, it looks like a curtain. Maybe he was thinking of like a bead curtain. And I thought it must be very, it must be a very difficult experience for each drop of water to come down from the top of such a high mountain. Each time, you know, for a, you know, a long time, for the water to finally reach the bottom of the waterfall. And it seems to me that our human life may be like this. We have many difficult experiences in our life, but at the same time, I thought the water was not originally separated, but was one whole river. So in the metaphor of the waterfall, you know, it's a river before it reaches the the point where it drops off, and then it separates into sheets and curtains and bits of water. So prior to this individual um, bead of water traversing this trial, meaning falling from the top of the mountain to the bottom. And I think this is sort of our lifespan. You know, we're in one individual drop falling. Um, he said, "I thought the water was not originally separated, but was one whole river. Only when it is separated does it does it have some difficulty in falling. It is as if the water does not have any feeling when it is one whole river." Only when separated into many drops can it begin to have or express some feeling, some individuality, some uniqueness that is our our life. When we see the whole river, we do not feel the living activity of the water. But when we dip, Before our life starts, uh, we're just part of one whole river, and at the end of our life, we return to one whole river. And it's only that part of being an individual, of encountering this world alone in some way, that we feel um, disease, that we feel fear. Um, Anyway, that's that's the encouragement that I hear in that story. Um, so I guess I'm not alone in um, having this as a practice experience. But um, Zenke Blanche Hartman also talked about. Uh, she also had a heart attack kind of early in life. I think she was maybe fifty or so. 
but it was a big instigation in her own practice. Um, and in this um, section, she talks a little bit, it's more of her friend's death, but she said, I came to practice because I discovered that I was going to die. Me, personally. <laughs> I just had, had never considered it before. But then my best friend, who was my age and had kids the age of my kids, had a headache one night when we were together. It was such a bad headache that she went to the doctor the next morning. She was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor, went into a coma, and died. Whoosh! Maybe a month altogether from the first headache. Well, that could have been me as readily as Pat, her friend. Oh my God, I'm going to die. But the next thought was, how do you live if you know you're going to die? And Blanche repeated this line many times in many different talks. So, uh, it has been such a gift to me that that question came up. And so I started looking for who could tell me how, I, how to live if I know I'm going to die. And I do know I'm going to die. She says, so I'll share uh, with you these five daily recollections from the um, Upajatana Sutta, Sutra of the Buddha. So I am a nature to grow old. There is no uh, way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no escape at, to having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everything I have and everything I love are of a nature to change. There is no way to escape from losing them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the, act the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. I think to consider our own um, limited uh, lifespan or to touch you know um, the reality of change in profound ways whether with the people around us or in our own life um, this doesn't have to be a dark foreboding thing to even talk about um, it actually can be the ground of inspiration to, to, to live better, to be more awake, to be more generous. What am I trying to keep? How long do I think I'm going to keep it for? I forgot to look at the clock. Can you see there's a clock on the shelf to your oh. Okay. So I think maybe that's enough. It's a, it's eleven. Yeah. Okay. I think that's the end scheduled end of the talk time. Yes.
<laughs> okay. Well, um, enjoy your life. Um, see what, what you can do or recall from your own life and experience that helps you to appreciate how uh, rare uh, a treat it is to be here right now. So I appreciate being here with uh, all of you.